welcome. This is Ukraine World Podcast. Ukraine World is a, is a website and podcast which informs the international audience in English about developments in Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, and I'm happy to have here Christopher Miller, who is a journalist based in Kiev, working for BuzzFeed and Radio Free Europe. Hello, Christopher. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we are discussing now what happened yesterday in Paris, the Normandy summit aimed at uh, uh, aimed at putting the end, basically, of the war in Donbass. We had uh, Mr. Zelensky, Ukraine's president, Mr. Putin, uh, Russia's president, and Merkel from Germany and Macron from France. So, Chris, what are your impressions of this event? Well, first, I would say that it was more or less exactly what we expected. There were no major breakthroughs and no real surprises that came from the meeting. Um, we could see uh, a visible tension between Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine and Russia's President Vladimir Putin. Uh, when, when one or the other would speak, you could see the other kind of tense up and become a little bit anxious while listening to, to uh, their, their counterpart speak there. Um, it was my understanding um, through my reporting that the communique that was released and discussed at the press conference following the meeting had actually been written out and agreed to even before the Normandy format meeting in Paris began. This was a, uh, a requirement actually by the Russian side that it be written out and agreed to um, just to hold the meeting. And, you know, if you remember, this, this included things um, that were essentially the outcome of the meeting, right? And, and, and um, they were uh, a recommitment to a full ceasefire across the, the entire front line in, in the Donbass, um, a, a, an all-for-all -all prisoner exchange, hopefully before the end of the year. What else? Um, Demining operations to, to continue in Donbass. And there was uh, one or two other things. Uh, what? A, let's see here. The Steinmeier formula. Um, oh, the Steinmeier formula. Yes, um, the sort of uh, sequencing of elections. Although on that point, we know that they still didn't fully agree on exactly how the elections were to take place. Um, uh, who was, what kind of security force was to secure the area uh, for elections, and then also. The one thing that we knew both sides would have an issue with was border control. Let, let's let's sure, uh, we can come slow back down a little to, bit. Yeah, to this later. Uh, this meeting was held for the first time since 2016. So basically, it showed the willingness of the sides to move forward. Did it show something else than than just the, the, this willingness? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think it was a big step holding the meeting. This is, you know, the first the first meeting of the Normandy Four since October 2016, which was even before Macron was president and certainly before Zelensky became president. And we know that over the last three years there had been no movement. The conflict had been stalemated, and it was, you know, it just continued to grind on in Donbass with an average of two or three soldier deaths every week and civilian casualties on a weekly basis. You know, this, this meeting, I think, is a sign of progress. I would, I would, I do wonder, though, um, you know, if, if there is, if the progress comes from a 
new kind of relationship between a Ukrainian president and the Russian president, or if the progress really is just because of the change in the presidential office or the change in Bonkova, right? We, we know well that Poroshenko and Putin did not get along, and for very obvious reasons, both strong personalities and, of course, the annexation of Crimea and the conflict in Donbass. You know, Zelensky has taken a different stance from Poroshenko. He said that there can be no military uh, solution to the conflict. He said he's not interested in, in even, uh, you know, considering that, that, um, you know, peace can only be achieved through, through, through meetings like this and, and diplomatic means. Um, you know, I would, I would still say that, you know, this, this meeting does, it, it is a sign of some progress. Um, I, I just, you know, we saw, we saw in this press conference that the Ukrainian and the Russian sides are still very far apart yeah, when let's, it comes to this let's, conflict. Let's though. talk about these discrepancies. The first that strikes me is that Putin is, Putin is really saying that, well, Minsk agreements is like a Bible. We cannot really move away. And we understand right. why, because you mentioned the question of the border. Minsk 2, February 2015, says that first there are elections on these territories, and then Ukraine, Ukraine gradually gets control over the border, which is, uh, Zelensky clearly said many times that it is not what Ukraine would accept. Do you think that the sides can find a compromise on this? I really don't know. Uh, I, you know, I... If I had to say in, in, in one word, I would say no. Um, Zelensky actually did propose something very interesting yesterday. Um, that was telling Putin or offering Putin um, th this scenario where, where troops are withdrawn, Russian troops that is, from the Donbass are pulled out of Donbass and within 36 hours elections are, are held um, under a security force that both sides agree to. And that sounds rather reasonable. But Putin, of course, did not go for this because, as I said, they still, they still are very divided on this issue. And under you know, almost no circumstances is Putin going to allow for foreign uh, occupied forces, however you want to call them, Russian troops, um, to, to be withdrawn before an election. He but, sees it very much as a security force, right? Not yeah. as an occupying force. Yeah, but, but I think that the, the, the suggestion of Zelensky, which is, I mean, is welcome because it shows that Ukraine tries to be creative. Absolutely. That's, that's what lacked probably during the, the Poroshenko rule, that there are proposals going on, new and new proposals, and that's, that's very good. But the issue is that the creativity is on the Ukrainian side, and there is not any creativity on the Russian side. Exactly. The Russians are remaining steadfast in their positions yeah. that yeah. only through the Minsk, the Minsk agreements and the map, the roadmap that is outlined in the Minsk agreements um, uh, is the only way forward uh, and toward peace. And of course, they're saying that because the Minsk agreements uh, favor favor Russia, of course. or in some places are written so vaguely that each side is able to interpret it, the, the Minsk agreements, however they feel. Well, I would say that Minsk agreements, especially Minsk too, uh, is, a, is a basic sign of this Russia coercion to peace strategy. And it was, remember, that it was basically signed during the major escalation, both Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 on the front. But let's come back to the Zelensky suggestion. 
Imagine that Putin says, I don't know, in four months, they agree that they will meet in, in four months' time, that, okay, I give you a concession. So uh, uh, we have these 36 hours to get to make the election, but all the process before it, it was basically controlled by Russians, and all the campaign was controlled by Russians, and then pro-Russian forces win in this election. And then on the day of the election, the special status applies, at, at least provisionally. So can it be also a trap for Ukraine? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think Ukraine should, should consider every proposal of Putin um, as if it were some kind of trap. I think you can only think of it that way, because everything up to this point has sort of, has sort of been a trap, right? Ultimately, Putin wants to see Ukraine fail. In, in, in no, under no circumstances does, does, does Putin particularly uh, and the Kremlin more broadly want to see Ukraine succeed. They want to see Ukraine brought back into the Russian fold, right? So I think every proposal that, that Putin puts forward should be, should be taken with a huge amount of, of skepticism. Um, you know, I, I, this also goes back to like the creativity thing, right? Like there's, there's not been a lot of creativity on the Russian side. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that the, what, we, what we heard from Putin yesterday has really been very different from what we've heard in the past. Um, so I think at this point, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really, unfortunately, for any, for any great progress, what's going to have to happen is significant compromises on the Ukrainian side or Putin not being in office anymore. I don't know what will come first. Certainly Zelensky has a lot of public support for this. While his popularity has fallen to uh, in the 50th, the 50th percentile down from um, the 70th percentile in September, um, support for him talking with Putin and, and seeking peace in Donbass remains around 76%, I think polls this week said. So I think there might still be some room for creativity on the Ukrainian side, but I'm not, I'm not sure that Russia's willing to meet Ukraine on any of these compromises. It still seems to me as though Russia's, you know, um, uh, digging into its positions even deeper. Let's discuss another proposal which was voiced by Zelensky and which was we, the people that follow this story, heard about this already a few days before. The idea that, well, there is a pressure from Russia. You should talk to, uh, directly, Kyiv should talk to Donetsk and Kyiv should talk to Luhansk, which Kyiv does not accept because Kyiv thinks that uh, those authorities, so-called authorities in Donetsk or Luhansk are basically illegal or even, I mean, terrorists and criminals, etc. So there, there is a proposal that, look, in the Minsk four multilateral working group, we have uh, representatives from Donetsk and Luhansk, but Ukraine has also suggested to introduce representatives from IDPs, internally displaced persons who were in Donetsk and Luhansk, but then fled the country. And this kind of creates a forum of Donbass talking with Donbass. What do you think about it? I, again, I think it's a very creative way to to spark some dialogue. I think that that is something that has been lacking in the last few years. There's been a refusal, just an outright refusal on the part of the previous administration to communicate with, with almost anybody on the other side of the front line. I think that Zelensky needs to be careful in not, um, in, 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 about, about who is doing the talking and 
it might not be a good idea for his office in particular to to do to to, to partake in direct communication with um, uh, you know those those figurehead separatist leaders that are ultimately controlled by by Moscow. Uh, but the idea of IDPs communicating with one another and appointing representatives who have not been combatants, who are not officially members of either the Russian government or the uh, the, the authorities of the so-called Lugansk and, and Donetsk People's Republics or Kiev, I think I think that's a really fascinating idea and something that certainly should be explored. We, you know, there have already been representatives from the uh, occupied territories of Donetsk and Lugansk meeting with representatives from Kiev in Minsk, as you mentioned. Why not expand that a little bit more? I know that there are intelligent people on both sides of the conflict line that have nuanced positions and some fresh ideas uh, that could help spark a dialogue between the two sides. And in my numerous trips to the front line and to crossing points in Donbass, I know that people living on both sides of the contact line want to communicate with each other, with their former neighbors, with their family members. You know, I think it's important to remember that some of these towns and villages that sit on the front line are divided. Uh, you know, the, the front line cuts right through what is essentially Main Street. You, you can, you, can uh, you know, be in one town and be on one side of the, of the front line or the other. And there are a lot of people who, who you know, are, are communicating by phone um, you know, with, with, with people, but they haven't seen people um, on the other side, even though they live only a few hundred meters apart. You know, there's already been a dialogue going on, but why not kind of bring this out into the open and, and have, have a, a broader discussion I think in doing so, this this can can only be beneficial to Ukraine. You know, I, I I could see that possibly the Russian side might have an issue with this because it seems to be against uh, openness and transparency, um, uh, and 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 um, you know and and this kind of dialogue. But I think I think that this is one way to you know by by opening these channels. Uh, to allow the people who've been directly affected by the conflict in Donbass to speak is, is, a, is, a, is one of these areas where progress can be made. Ukraine and Russia might, Ukraine might not be able to solve the conflict right now. And it's not going to be able to in a few months. And it's not going to be able to in a year or possibly even five, unfortunately. But this, in my opinion, is an is a creative, interesting step in the right direction. That's very good that we touched upon this topic because uh, I remind to, to our listeners that we are talking with Chris Miller, a uh, journalist in Kiev, working for BuzzFeed and Radio Free uh, Europe. Chris, you traveled a lot uh, in the war zone. We re all remember your story about MH17 when you, when you found the, the, the place uh, from when it was fired. Uh, and what you're talking right now is is very important because I have the impression that the well we, we all understand that 
Uh, many of us understand that th this conflict doesn't have a military solution, but we come to maybe to a point that we might understand that it doesn't have a political solution because of the stalemates of the Minsk process. And it's important to introduce this social humanitarian uh, side, you know, to open this, you know, people to people communication. What do you think? Absolutely. Well, you know, this this dialogue between IDPs is a is certainly an example of that. Um, the the repair of the Stanislav Lugansk bridge um, was was another example, actually, of not only um, not, not only a sort of um, humanitarian step taken, um, but but also an example of communication between the Ukrainian. Uh, government-controlled side and the um, separatist side, and, and I mean, I actually mean by local, by local, you know, Russia-backed authorities, not the Russian um, leadership in Moscow. You know, there was there was a, a dialogue that had to take place in order to uh, get this bridge, which crosses the front line in this very contentious region in Lugansk Oblast, um, to to get fixed. So, you know, there was cooperation between the two sides there, very interestingly. And it showed that um, that looking at this conflict through the humanitarian lens uh, might be the way toward a peace. Now, that peace might not be a total solution to the conflict, which I, I think we're still far from. But it could lead to you know, lessening the intensity of the conflict even more than it has since 2015 when the Minsk II Accord was signed. Um, and it could actually lead to a ceasefire across the entire front line. You know, opening more crossing points, addressing humanitarian issues, making repairs on, on buildings, ensuring that people have gas and electricity and access to water, um, and, 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 and fixing things like these, like these bridges, which are a very clear symbol of, of peace, right? It doesn't get more clear than building a bridge between the two, a literal bridge between the two sides. These are all steps that I think could be taken to, to at least stop the shooting which would, in effect, stop the killing, which is what most people living in Donbass want right now. I think a lot of smart people know that there's no you know, solution uh, to the war right now. But if you you know, in, in my reporting out there, and just in talking with, with, with you know, hundreds of people over the last you know, several years, what they want ultimately is just for the shooting to stop. And then to work on the political solution, right? And they know that that's going to take a long time, but... Let's talk about this uh, ceasefire. In an another important, very important decision of this meeting was the enlargement of the OEC mandate. Uh, it was a lot of criticism that OEC is working only during the daytime and the shelling goes uh, during the nighttime. Now it is enlarged 24-7. Do you think it will help? I think it could. I would be curious to hear what the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission has to say about monitoring 24-7. There are certainly, this is certainly going to increase the, the danger element for the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission, which has already lost um, you know, a, a member and has had other members uh, injured um, while patrolling in the daytime. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's going to take quite a bit from the um, the, the two warring sides uh, in terms of, you know, promises made about uh, mining, um, for example, 
uh, to get the OSCE SMM on board with this. I know that you know they're already monitoring in some locations with cameras 24/7 uh, because they can't actually physically be present in in some areas 24/7. You know, I I know that when the OSCE is around, the shooting does stop, and there's this joke actually among among soldiers on both sides and among civilians that when the OSCE comes to town we have we have a, a temporary peace everybody knows not to shoot when the OSCE is there because they don't want it to be recorded as a ceasefire violation and that goes for both sides and soldiers on both sides you know make that joke and and uh, civilians who who live uh, in these towns on the front line are very pleased when the OSCE comes to town because it means that they'll have a quiet afternoon or a quiet day. It would be great if it were possible to have the OSCE everywhere along the 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 front line 24/7 if it if it meant that, you know, this this quiet that comes when they're when they're in a location um, you know, uh, is, is, is able to kind of take hold across the entire front line. But it's going to take a lot more people than what the OSC has. They already have a lot of people in, in, in the country. I forget the, the exact number, but it's you know, a couple thousand, I believe. Uh, you'll have to check me on that. But um, you know, this is a long front line. The territory that is being fought for is big. It's the, it's, it's the size of almost the state of New Jersey, the US state of New Jersey, that is. The front line itself is around 450 kilometers. It's going to take a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of space out there to be covered. Let's maybe uh, talk about the wider issue, geopolitical issue. There was a big fear now in Ukraine that Ukraine is increasingly uh, left alone because we have like Trump administration withdrawing its kind of attention to it. Kurt Walker is no longer there. Uh, many, many people who are following the conflict from the Trump administration also are no longer there. Uh, UK is in the Brexit process. Uh, Merkel is kind of uh, preparing for to end her mandate. And Macron is saying that there is a need to for dialogue with Russia. Do you think that this fears, and, and Ukraine is fearing that it will be left alone with Russia, an aggressive country? Do you think that these fears are legitimate? I think they are. They're, they're certainly not unfounded. Um, Macron has suggested rapprochement with Russia. Um, as you mentioned, Merkel is on her way out, and she's been one of the most steadfast backers of Ukraine, and certainly a key figure in these Normandy format meetings like we saw yesterday. Um, you know, she, she speaks Russian herself. She's very familiar with Vladimir Putin in his ways. I think she's, she's kind of helped to keep these, these meetings um, on, on track. Um, yes, the Ukrainians are, are right to be concerned um, re regarding the sort of waning support um, in in Europe, but I think I think one of the key things is is the sort of retreating influence or oh yeah of of um, of the United States. As you mentioned, Kurt Volker resigned. He was the special envoy for Ukraine for the last couple of years. Um, he resigned amid this impeachment scandal, and so there is no American point man on the conflict um, currently. There is still um, an acting ambassador, or the charge at the U.S. Embassy, who is Bill Taylor, who is a former ambassador to Ukraine. The, the, the uh, former ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch, was recalled this spring, just as Zelensky was, uh, was elected president here. 
And you know, so the American footprint does seem to be shrinking. Certainly, there's a president in office in Washington right now who has said uh, things that are very concerning to Ukrainians. He's he's been very open about his adoration for Vladimir Putin. He has said that uh, Crimea. Uh, or he, he's, he's suggested that Crimea belongs to Russia because people overwhelmingly voted to join Russia without providing any context about the actual vote um, you know, that took place down there in, in, in 2014. Um, he has also said that he thought Ukrainians um, uh, meddled in the 2016 election and, and tried to uh, keep him from becoming president and supported Hillary Clinton. He's, I believe, said, uh, according to many of the U.S. diplomats who have testified in Washington in recent weeks, that he thought Ukrainians are terrible people. Um, so Ukrainians are right to be concerned when you have the president of the country who has been your strongest political ally and financial backer, especially in the last five plus years amid this conflict, saying those things, I, I, I think you, you, know, you need to be concerned. But then you also need to think about how you're go what you're going to do you know, if, 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 this, if this remains the case or how to fix that relationship. And that might be something for another for another uh, yeah. another time to talk about at length, but um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay, let's maybe wrap up our conversation. My last very short question: What gives you hope when you think about Donbas? Hmm. You know, I I think it's first and foremost the people who are living there still, those who have endured more than five years of war, who you know. Uh, have have not always been granted a voice, but are now being heard. I think that, and I don't want to give all of the credit simply to President Zelensky, but I think there has been a real change or a shift in society that is reflected in Zelensky, but is 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 a, a sort of broader sentiment in society that I've noticed that in order to make progress we need to be listening to the people who are directly affected by this conflict on a daily basis. And, and particularly those people who are residents of the Donbass. And because there are some new innovative suggestions um, to, to advance um, uh, peace you know, through dialogue and through humanitarian efforts, I, I have some hope that there might be some more steps taken in the not so distant, not so distant future, to ultimately, um, you know, kind of scale back this this war. I don't think that it's going to end completely or be solved completely anytime soon. Unfortunately, as much as I wish that it would, I think we're we're a long way from that. But those things that I mentioned do give me some hope. Thanks so much, Christopher. This was Christopher Miller, journalist based in Kyiv, working for BuzzFeed, Radio Free Europe, and uh, reporting very much about Ukraine and Donbass. This was Ukraine World. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, and stay with us. Mm -hmm.